Hello, everybody. So for this week's episode, it's going to be a lot... This week and next week's episode is going to be a lot different from what we usually do. Um, Today, I am joined with my mom. Hey, everyone. Her name is Shannon. And then for next week's episode, it's going to be Maddie, and she's going to have her mom on. And we kind of want to do this to get a different perspective on emetophobia, um, you know, a mom to daughter perspective and I don't know it's just a side that we've never talked about on this podcast or on the Instagram and also I'm gonna you know chat with my mom about this but she's also in school and her work is related to mental health and disabilities and all of that sort of stuff so I think we'll be good and another key point is Maddie and her mom is very very important to her for her journey emetophobia wise and then also with me, my mom is definitely my safe person. So yeah, it'll be good. It'll be good to chat about all of that. Why don't we start off, mom, by you introducing yourself by talking about, you know, your job with the university and um, your career path for the future and then your schooling and all of that sort of stuff. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Just kidding. Uh, let's start off. I want to I want to mention our ages for perspective for uh, parents because, you know, if if they have a Mm -hmm. child or something, I am 22 and then my mom is 51. And then I was 14 when my emetophobia developed and my mom was mid 40s ish, somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. Okay, (laughs) now go. (laughs) Sorry for cutting you off. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So my journey, okay, so I went to college as a young person and completed everything for my bachelor's except six classes. I ended up having my three biological children almost back to back. So Brooke's brother is 24 and Brooke has a twin, Abby, they're 22. So when the twins were born, I knew that going back to school would have to be put off. I was just a full-time mom of three babies, and um, I started working at a university 18 years ago, stay-at-home mom for a little while, and then started working at a university, and I was fortunate enough to work in counseling and psychological services, and... I worked there full-time for seven years. I worked at the front desk, so I had a lot of, um, I would be the first point of contact for students coming in and would assess for emergency situations such as suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation, a recent rape or physical attack, those kind of things. And I was fortunate enough to be around some amazing psychologists. Then at one point, a job became available part-time in the disability services office. And I was ready to go part-time at that time in my life. And it's been wonderful working in both of these offices. So last year... I decided to go back and finish up my bachelor's, finish up my last six classes. I graduated with a psychology degree, and because of my experience in both of the offices of counseling and psych services and disability services, 
I knew that this, and this was just the right timing in life also with my children being in their 20s now, that I have applied to a Master's of Social Work program Mm -hmm. and uh, actually three different programs. I've heard that I've been accepted to one and we're waiting on the other two. So that will be in my near future starting that program. And a Master's of Social Work, there's really two areas. You can be a social worker once you graduate or after a certain number of hours, additional hours and more state exams, you can become a licensed therapist. That's called an LCSW, a licensed clinical social worker, another word for a therapist. So I'm really excited for that phase of my life. So you would get your master's program and then you would decide whichever you would want to do? Well, once you graduate with your master's, you'll take an exam and you're automatically a social worker. But if you'd like to be licensed as a therapist, you have to, depending on what state you're in, I have to do about 3,000 hours mm-hmm. of clinical supervision. Yeah, to, with, mm-hmm. to get that. Right. Which is, I mentioned this yesterday, but that is what Ken Goodman is, the guy. A lot of people on the page knows about this book because I talk about it very often. Mm-hmm. Um, but the guy who wrote the Metaphobia Manual, which is a book off Amazon specifically for emetophobia, but it kind of works for any phobia in general. But the author of that book is exactly what my mom was just explaining. He's a social worker. Mm -hmm. LCSW, Licensed Clinical Social Worker. Yeah, it's interesting to know. Mm -hmm. Um, I've also gone onto Amazon to look at his book. I'm very impressed with it. So I would definitely recommend it. Yeah, you're the one who bought me the book. Mm Mm-hmm. Ken Goodman, actually, I think I may have told you about this, but he reached out to me on Instagram uh, saying that he would love to be on the podcast in one episode and to email him. And I would love to have him on the podcast. It's just, I don't know, it's a little nerve wracking. So I haven't reached out to him, but I definitely, I think that'd be really awesome. I'm a huge fan of his book. Um, Yeah, I hope you take that opportunity. I'd love to listen to that too. I know Maddie and I would have to, we have to send him an email or something. Um, Okay, so... Yeah, so you work you work at a university with people with mental and physical disabilities. Your entire life has been surrounded with disabilities and mm-hmm. all of that. Your school for psychology, your work, your job, and then your three children all have disabilities, mental disabilities. So you're very surrounded by all of that. Well, and not to mention that we do on my mother's side of the family, we have a strong uh, there's a there's a lot of mental people in our family that have that struggle with mental health. Yeah. Well, so c- going off of that, do you want to explain your experience with anxiety? Mm-hmm. Sure. So growing up, I did not experience any anxiety. It didn't really hit me until after when really when it started and it came on strong is when I was going through the, the divorce process with your father. Mm-hmm. And I had, so I consider my, my anxiety to be situational. Mm-hmm. Although there were other things, I remember talking to my friend Karen and I would have, <laughs> I would have panic attacks every, I don't know if you know this, I'd put you all to bed And I would do laundry on Sunday night. I'd start Mm -hmm. it before you all went to bed. And I would have panic attacks over laundry. 
they weren't massive panic attacks. But overdoing the laundry? <laughs> yes, because I was just so overwhelmed. I was a single mom. Mm-hmm. And uh, I once I figured out, Shannon, why are you doing this to yourself? Why are you waiting till Sunday night to do four people's laundry and putting all that pressure on you? Once I was able to change that situation, obviously this is you know, there's, this is a lesser scale of anxiety mm-hmm. because I was able to, to get away change from it. it. And, yeah. right, right. Right. So that was my first experience with anxiety. But then when I was going through the divorce process, we had to go to court a number of times and I would get these massive panic attacks that felt like heart attacks. And oftentimes they would wake me up in the middle of the night and I would be, I just, I would wake up and think, oh my gosh, I'm dying. I need to be rushed to the emergency room. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then I learned to recognize what the symptoms are and it goes into this whole crazy cycle of, okay, I'm, I know I'm not having a panic attack. I'm in my thirties. I'm, I'm healthy. No, you're not I'm having a, a heart attack. A heart attack. Yeah. Right. Right. And so, and panic then, attack. right. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry. So I, I would have to talk myself, try and use my logical brain as it was being illogical, telling me I'm going to die. And yeah. it was really frightening. So one night I, and I know this is not the case for everyone, but this is my story. Mm -hmm. One night I woke up from a deep sleep, having this full blown panic attack that felt like a heart attack. And I was, I was almost like pissed off at it. You Mm -hmm. know, like I'm so tired of doing this. I, I have to wake up in three hours and tend to my children and get you off to school so I can get off to work and all this. And I said, I'm going to get through this and I'm going to get through it quickly. And my panic attacks, I could barely breathe. And so I remember saying, okay, my breaths are coming like just on top of each other. Can I try and put two seconds of space between my breaths? Mm -hmm. And then I gradually increased it to where I was breathing normally. And that night was just this turnaround for me. I I felt empowered. I knew that I could use breathing techniques to get through that when it happened again. Mm -hmm. And then the more that I was able to use those breathing techniques, the less panic attacks I had. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw a post like this morning or something on Twitter that said, if you're having a panic attack, breathe through a straw, which... This goes for people with like the common anxiety disorder where Mm -hmm. their anxiety is in their chest. For us, for a huge majority of us, our anxiety is in our stomachs. But for those who have the anxiety in their chest, the post said to breathe through a straw because it's very small. So you have to like slowly Mm -hmm. breathe it in and then like slowly breathe it out. Mm -hmm. That reminded me of what you were talking about. But yeah, you know, anxiety is so different for, like I said, for us, we have it in our stomach, so we feel nauseous, but for a majority of people, they, you know, they feel like they're having a heart attack or they're dying or they're going to have a stroke or something. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and I mentioned this yesterday too, but you said, you would always say this growing up that you would rather have my form of anxiety and then I would rather have your form of anxiety 
and it would just flip flop all the time. Well, yes, the grass always is greener on the other side, uh, but they're both awful in their different ways. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think about that. I've thought about it before and I think about it deeper and I'm like, hmm, honestly, like as much as I hate emetophobia and as much as it is debilitating, when I start to feel something funky going on my chest, you are completely (laughs) hopeless. Like there is nothing you can do. Like what, you go to the hospital and then they're just like... Yeah, that's that's pretty scary. <laughs> okay, so my mom is the one who found out about emetophobia for me when when I was having my or when my emetophobia I guess first developed. I didn't know the word or the term or anything, but my mom is the one who actually found it and she told me about it. And I asked you about this yesterday and you said you don't remember how it came I about. I don't I I vaguely remember something with social media, probably Facebook back then. And and it's just, I'm a huge believer in, especially with mental health issues, that if you can find, if you can define what you're experiencing, and if you can connect with other people that are experiencing the same thing or similar things, and be part of a community, even when there's no cure, there is just support. And you know that other people are experiencing, you'd never... You never want to wish this on other people, but you can relate to other people. And sometimes people in the community find what works for them. You can try different things that maybe you wouldn't think of. So I was really happy to find that this was a thing. Yeah. I think that not only, you know, to find out so you can find a community that can be helpful, but I think even being diagnosed, um, seeing a psychiatrist and getting yourself diagnosed with things can help tremendously. Like when, you know, if you find out that you have emetophobia and then you get a specific phobia diagnosed, you can start that treatment plan, which can be so helpful. And just knowing that too, like, like if you have OCD related phobia stuff, it would be helpful to know exactly that is what's going on. So you can get the exact professional treatment or know exactly what to like, look up or I don't know Mm -hmm. go further well even piggybacking off of that you had a great psychiatrist but he never would diagnose you specifically with emetophobia I remember talking to him both of us on multiple occasions and telling him about emetophobia Mm -hmm. and he never diagnosed you with that he put down um general anxiety disorder yeah I was looking at all of my diagnosis and like on my sharp health plan app thing. And mm-hmm. it's, there is no phobia or anything, no OCD, right. no PTSD or anything like that. It is just general anxiety disorder. But mm-hmm. I've talked to, you know, I've talked to so many people on the Instagram page and I don't think you'd get diagnosed with emetophobia. That If you were to get diagnosed with that phobia, you would get, di- it would say like on the paper, it would say specific phobia. Mm-hmm. And then um, for those who aren't diagnosed with a specific phobia, they'd either most likely be diagnosed with like anxiety or OCD. Right. Yeah. And the the point is really when you're seeking medical, well, if you don't need medication, it's still important to talk to your family doctor about this Mm -hmm. because one day you may need some kind of accommodations, whether you're in school or whether you're at work. 
that the American Disabilities Act, ADA, it's often called, it, it's a law that if you have a disability, documented disability, that you can receive accommodations. So if this is something that you struggle with, I really encourage you to, if you haven't already, connect with a medical professional. I definitely recommend therapy, but you'll need to speak with a medical doctor, your family doctor, or a psychiatrist, and have this start to be documented in case you need it in the future. Mm -hmm. And if you're a mom listening to this podcast regarding your child, um, even even if they're like four years old, seven years old, mm-hmm. I don't know, the earliest, at any age, I would also recommend to still go to a doctor and mention it to them. And not for, because a lot of doctors think like, they hear something like that, and they're like, okay, treatment, here's medicine, here's this, here's this, 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 treatment, get you solved. But um, again, stand up for yourself if you don't want to do all of that. And just say, like, no, we just want it to be on the record for later Mm -hmm. on if it gets worse, because doctors will throw things at you (laughs) if you don't say otherwise. A lot of them will, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the times, yes, you're not ready for something like that at this phase in your life, but to have it documented consistently and, you know, you go in for an annual exam, say, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling with anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm good. I don't feel like I need a medication, but can you please put it on my record? Because when you don't have to be taking medication to have a permanent disability. So it's just good to have mm-hmm. that history noted. Yeah. Having a disability, a mental or physical disability for us, on our sake, it's mental. Having a mental disability on our record can accommodate us for a lot of things regarding school, work, uh, like college, high school, even middle school. Um, I'll have you share like the school side, but for work, like you, no one can fire you for a disability. You know, obviously there's some really bad people and they'll make up another excuse to get you fired if they don't want you on the job. But if you have anxiety, you know, listed as a disability and someone's trying to fire you because something related to your anxiety, you can, you know, use that speak up about that so that's a plus with getting it getting diagnosed for that regarding work yeah certainly and if you're in school if you're in high school and looking for a job or at a community college or at a university those three places schools at any level have professionals that can help you with accommodations not only in school But there are programs like the one that I work for, it's called Workability 4, that when you're in college, we walk beside you. And as you're looking for jobs, we help you navigate the process of, oh, well, should I disclose that I have a disability in my interview? Should I not say anything in my interview? Should I wait till I am offered a job? Should I wait until my first week? And it's individual to everyone. So there are programs that can help support you and know what's right for you and what you need as far as accommodations go. Not only for what you're saying, it sounded like university situation or like community college situation for like the programs. But in high school, if you or if you're, you know, if you're a mom listening, if you have a daughter or a son in middle school or in high school, actually, I'm not quite sure about middle school, but in high school, 
you can talk to a counselor at the school or whatever that is. I don't know. You can say in a second, but you can talk to them and get accommodations in high school regarding things that you think will help you to be more successful in class. Like for me, I was able to get an accommodation in high school where I was able to leave the classroom whenever I wanted to without having to ask the teacher. And the teacher obviously wouldn't find that as disrespectful because it's an accommodation for my mental health. And um, I'd be able to just get up in the middle of the classroom if I wanted to and just go for a walk around campus or sit outside or go to the bathroom and, you know, call someone like I would call my mom, kind of just regroup for a little bit. So there is a lot of accommodations. Do you know who you would talk to for that? Yeah, you would just talk to the school counselor and it starts right when you enter into school. If you have some kind of disability, it can be documented even in elementary school. So the school counselor should have that information for you when your emetophobia started before we talked to a school counselor. So you were struggling with it for a while, actually stayed home for a couple of years. And then when you went back to school, I said, oh, we definitely need to meet with a counselor if you recall, the counselor and I think a, another representative from the administration and the two of us sat down and we talked about what you experience and what kind of accommodations you feel best would help you in high school. I remember talking to, I think it was the principal mm-hmm. or like Some, the vice yeah. principal or something. I don't know. It Someone was, in the administration. Yeah, yeah, we had to do like a meeting regarding... <laughs> my mental health and getting an accommodation. Yeah. And it's not uncommon. So what that's called in high school is called an IP uh, IEP. It's confusing because in my job, we have something different called an IPE, but IEP in high school, it's called individual education plan. Is this only in America? It's for sure in America. I'm not sure about other countries. But a lot of countries do have disability acts. Some mm-hmm. don't. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening in a different country, uh, I'd hop on Google as just a first point of research and look up disability acts for your country and go from there. But if you are in school, you should have a counselor on campus. Yeah, if you're in high school, mm-hmm. you're not going to be looking that up. If you're in high school, just talk to your yeah. school counselor and yeah. they may be able to help you more. Well, even in elementary and junior high, they have counselors on campus. Yeah. So uh, something that we talked about yesterday was the start of your emetophobia in in high school. Mhm. In PE. Oh yeah, so I've, I've shared my story on the podcast before, but I don't know how deep I've gone into it. My emetophobia stemmed mostly from PE. Uh, I was very uncomfortable in PE just because like running a mile would upset my stomach and then it would flare up my anxiety. And then that's when my emetophobia got really, really bad. So I stopped going to school. Like I just didn't go to school for two years of high school because of that. And I was did not leave the house at all. That was a new experience for me as your mom, because you did struggle with anxiety in junior high, and you visited the nurse's office a lot. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of the start, but you weren't able to pinpoint the metaphobia until high school. Yeah, mm -hmm. Yeah, 
I mean, it's hard for me to tell because, you know, growing up, I've always suffered from anxiety mm-hmm. uh, or eh, I didn't suffer from anxiety, but I had anxious moments that were kind of just like, you know, looking back, I'm like, okay, that was definitely anxiety. Like driving to Disneyland, I would always feel nauseous. Oh, yeah. I remember mm-hmm. one time we were driving to Disneyland and mind you, I did not have emetophobia. I could not care less about throwing up when I was a kid. I remember we were driving to Disneyland. It was my brother, my sister, and me in the backseat, all three of us in the backseat. And I was sitting there with my mouth open and my brother was like, why is your mouth open? And I said, because I feel like I'm going to throw up and like, I don't know, just getting prepared. <laughs> Super weird. I just did, I could not care about throwing up back then. But what were we talking about? Um, just the start of your anxiety. Yeah. I mean, like in middle school, you know, I had anxious moments. It was more so just here and there. And my brother had really bad anxiety too. So you you were familiar with his anxiety too. His anxiety is stomach-based as well, mm-hmm. right? Is it just stomach-based? Maybe a little bit of it both? It was stomach-based. I That was – his anxiety was based around physically going to school. So, yeah. you know, with as a parent, it's just really – It's challenging as a parent because you have to, you know, my thought was he would wake up every morning and just really have stomach issues. And I thought before we dive deeper in this, my brother would throw up every single morning from anxiety um, before school or at least like he would he would just be in the bathroom like gagging for like Mm -hmm. an hour every single morning. Sometimes he would throw up. Sometimes nothing would come up because nothing had to come up. But if you don't throw up from anxiety, you you won't just randomly start throwing up from anxiety. Like I have been in the most anxious, debilitating panic attacks of my life where I swear I'm going to be sick. I mean, I am shaking, sweating, like my body is numb and I, we just don't throw up. So that's just mm-hmm. our anxiety. So, you know, me talking about my brother, my brother is prone to throwing up when he's anxious. Meanwhile, we aren't. So if you're not someone, it's like kind of being like motion sick. Like if you, you, if you're always motion sick, then you're going to get motion sick. But if you're not, you're not going to randomly get it when you're 20, you know? Mm-hmm. So I wanted yeah. to throw that out there because that can be triggering for someone with hematophobia listening. Okay. Anyway. Um, so yes, we went through that experience um, around the same time I was getting my anxiety really bad. Mm-hmm. You were getting anxious. Your sister dealt with anxiety, but she kept it to herself a lot. I found out later. Yeah, I don't know. Abby's my sister. Her name's Abby. She's she she gets anxiety, but I wouldn't say she has anxiety. Like I she her anxiety is very managed. Like I mean, she'll get a panic attack, but then she'll be able to like it's a very you know it's a debilitating panic attack for like an hour, but then she'll be able to like control it for in the future. Like for the most part, it's it's not like it doesn't control her life in any way shape or form like it's not debilitating in any way (laughs) but yeah you know you've you've dealt with all three of us so when I had anxiety in high school when my anxiety did start to flare up I mean it wasn't new to you so you had more of an understanding for a lot of parents with children with emetophobia they don't know anything about mental health so then when they hear about emetophobia they're just like get over it like that's so stupid like it's irrational but for you, you had more of a sense working with it, dealing with it yourself, having my older brother deal with it too. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think the best thing that we can do for as parents is communication with our children, asking how can we help you? How can we be of support? And because it's so individual for everyone. So how did you feel most supported by me? Um, I, I don't even really know, honestly, like I, I, to this day, the, you know, my metaphobia flared up when I was like 14 and I'm 22 now. Um, so this was, it's been a long time, but to this day, I would still say you are my number one support person because, you know, you, when it was really bad and even throughout the years, like when it does flare up a little bit more, you're always right by my side. You always have my support. I don't, I don't know what I want. I don't know what kind of support I want, but just, I guess you being there is enough. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said yesterday, you know, I remember being, this happened, this has happened multiple times, but I remember driving with you in the car and I'm having a panic attack or like I'll be on the phone with you um, and I'm having a panic attack and you'll, you know, try and talk to kind of distract me, mm-hmm. which works for a lot of people. Um, and it sometimes works for me, but what not. Anyway, you would be talking in the car and I would be like, no, 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 like, please stop talking. Like, this is making me more anxious. And then you'll stop talking. And then I'm like, wait, no, 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 Keep talking. Like, I think that does help. And then it's like, because I don't know what I need. I don't know what helps right. me or not. I'm kind of just, you know, it's new to me. It's new to you. It's new to everyone. We don't really know what's <laughs> yeah. going on. But you were like, you were, as long as I wasn't being rude to you, um, you were mm-hmm. very willing to do whatever I asked within like I didn't ever ask like something crazy but within reason like you were by my side supportive you know if I told you that like I need you to stop talking you would stop talking if I told you like wait no let's like talk about something else you'll talk about something else um and then you would remind me a lot in high school that that like no matter what it's gonna be okay and you'll Mm -hmm. have my back no matter what and you know if I need to go to the doctor's office you would always be right there with me Yeah, I guess just having, you know, like if you're a mom listening to this podcast and you're, you have a, or a dad, you know, not specifically just moms, it's always been moms that reach out. But, you know, if you're a parent or a guardian that has a child with emetophobia, or even if you're listening because your partner or anything, I don't know, friends or family, whatever, I think it's just more so important that you don't have to understand the fear. But you have to, what do I always say? You don't have to understand the fear because the fear is super weird and irrational and stupid, but you have to be supportive, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So just, I guess, being by their side, I don't know. Yeah, well, it's, and not only you were saying that sometimes you don't know what you wanted or needed in the, when you're feeling incredibly anxious. Mm -hmm. But what will work one time may not work in the future. So the best way that we can support, we just being a collective, whoever is trying to be supportive of you, Mm -hmm. best way that we can do that is through communication and for you all telling us what's what's best for you in the moment Mm -hmm. and just being patient, staying in the moment. And then also sometimes... There, you know, there are times where, and we just dealt with this the other week, where you were experiencing something, and I said, 
I don't even remember what I said now. It, and this was over text message. I'm like, Brooke, you're overthinking this. This was, yeah, this was the other day mm-hmm. with my roommate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, you, I don't want to belittle you by any means, mm-hmm. but sometimes you need to hear your brain is trying to trick you right now. And we talk of, that's one thing we've talked about since we've all had anxiety is your brain is just this basic tool inside of you and it's not always the healthiest thing for you yeah there's a psychiatrist my favorite psychiatrist in the world named dr amen dr daniel amen look him up on instagram because he's amazing Mm -hmm. and he has something called ant ants automatic negative thoughts and how you got to get rid of your ants so sometimes you do need someone yeah yeah, he's, he's fabulous. So sometimes you do need someone to lovingly say, okay, you know, I've, how I think about it is like, okay, I've helped, I've helped Brooke. I know that she is in the heat of the moment. You know, she's very anxious. She's incredibly worried about a given situation. And then you keep going on and on and on about it. And I will lovingly say, okay, you're just, it's too much. We got to, we got to find some way to divert you or get you out of the situation or, and sometimes you've told me that that just really helps you that, that direct. Yeah. I'm communication. Yeah. One thing, I I don't know if this helps other people. I don't think I've really talked about it before, but one thing that helps me a lot is when people, I don't know, when people kind of remind me to think logically about, about everything and not only with what you just talked about, but sometimes like if you say, when you know, so, when you say like throwing up isn't bad, for me, in the right context, like if someone's saying that to be rude, I would that that would not be okay. Right. But for me, I'm like, okay, wait, it isn't that bad. Like it really isn't that bad. I it reminds me to think logically and realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, when I know some people, I don't know some people. I've heard that that really bugs them when people say that, but for me, that helps. So when I am in a really bad panic attack. It does help me to be like when you say, like Brooke, you're 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 really overthinking this because I need to be told that so I can mm-hmm. calm down for a little bit. And you trust me. Yeah, and I trust you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that would help me more than someone saying like no, like the you, you know you panicking over this is valid because then I would be like, so it is valid for me to think that I'm gonna get sick from something, you know? So I'd be like, <laughs> that would freak me out more. I would want I want to know that like I'm being ridiculous. You brought up this point yesterday that I've seriously never even thought about before, but, you know, especially as a teenager or a preteen, emotions are heightened and, you know, Mm -hmm. they freak out a lot easier over things. But like for someone with emetophobia, we may get triggered by someone and then we may like get upset with them over it. You know, someone may get Mm -hmm. sick and then we may like hold it against them or, um, Within reason, like if someone's fake gagging at school and they know that that's a trigger for you, that's just disrespectful. Mm-hmm. But within reason, again, like if someone's like getting sick and it's uncontrollable for them, like no one wants to get sick, you know what I mean? There's no reason for us to hold that grudge or anything. So being mean to a someone in regards to that, I've never really thought about that before, but I, I guess that can be very, that can be a thing for um, mm-hmm. parents like if you're a mom listening and you have you know a nine-year-old daughter 
they may freak out in those situations. And I guess you just got to hope that you guys both can work together to understand it's neither of your guys' fault and what to go forward about that. But Right. And I also want to speak to support people that we may not know how to handle things properly all the time also. So if you have said something out of frustration or done something in the past that wasn't the most appropriate, you know, we can always go back and say, hey, listen, I'm learning through this just like you're learning through this. And, you know, I wasn't proud of what I said. I'm so sorry. And I'm going to try and manage it better Mm -hmm. next time. Mm -hmm. Communication is just key. Mm -hmm. You were talking about something earlier. I forgot what it, exactly what you're talking about, but it reminded me of, oh, you're talking about how, or I was talking about how you are my support person, how you supported me, especially during that like very, very difficult time with my emetophobia. Mm -hmm. And that reminded me of how, I think it's really great to have a parent or, you know, any support person, a family, friend, whatever, partner, anything like that, to push you out of your comfort zone and make you do uncomfortable things and encourage you to do those uncomfortable things, but not too much. So for an example, let's say I'm at work and I'm starting to feel really anxious and nauseous. I'll text my mom and I'll like let her know and then she'll respond back saying like like push through you got this it's gonna be okay whatever push through and then maybe like 30 minutes later I'll text her again and I'm like I I like I'm really really struggling and you'll you'll say again like push through you got this push through and then I'll text you maybe again and just being like I can't do this like I've tried I've tried like you got to trust me on this I'm gonna go home I'm gonna leave early or something like that And then you would say like, okay, yes, that's understandable. You tried everything. And then you'd also like remind me like, don't guilt yourself for this um, Mm -hmm. because you do have to prioritize yourself. But it's not like I just only prioritize my mental health. It's that I tried. I tried to push through and then I was really struggling and then that's when that happened. So I think that's actually really, really important for anyone, even like a partner, um, to push, to encourage them to push through and not just give up super easily. Yeah, there's really a balance when you're trying to be there for someone. Because, you know, if you can push through, then you may feel that you're, it may empower you, just like how I push through with breathing exercises, when Mm -hmm. I was having my panic attacks. So it, it is good. And it's always just this balance, or trying to have a balance of okay, can, is this a time that they can push through? And then also trying to listen for, and when I say listen, it could even be through a text message because there have been so many times where you, for whatever reason, weren't able to call me, but you would send me a text and you're like, I'm really panicking right now. And I'm like, okay, you know, what can I do? Or um, what's going on? Well, I'm, I'm freaking out about such and such. And, um, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, Oh, my goodness, this is just not even something to be freaking out about. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I don't say that up front. Now, as we mentioned earlier, if you keep going on and on and on about it, I'll be like, Okay, come on, you need to. It's a little we need to have some right. Yeah. Yeah, there's group chats. um, 
you know, I've made some group chats on the Instagram page with people with hematophobia. And I remember one of the early group chats that I made years and years and years ago, there was one girl specifically that would come in the chat very often, multiple times a day, and just freak out all the time just saying like, I'm having so much anxiety, I'm having so much anxiety, yada, 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 freaking out multiple times a day for like weeks on weeks on weeks. And it's just like, at that point, you have to take care of yourself no amount of someone else is going to be able to get you out of that hole. You have to rely on yourself at that point. Um, yeah. It, and again, it's just this balance of, you know, my when you told me about that, my heart just goes out because you know that they're just really, really, really struggling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sucks. But ultimately with, yeah, with mental health issues, it is up to us. Mm-hmm. There's a slogan in San Diego, a mental health slogan, so, and it says, it's up to you, because you can certainly have support people, but ultimately, bottom line, you have to take care of your mental health, whatever that may be. And it almost always is a journey. Mm-hmm. You know, when I say that, it's not to judge at all. I've experienced it, so I'm certainly not judging anyone, but there there is the bottom line is you have to keep trying to find what works and what gives you some relief, especially when that changes. So one thing over the years that, well, I remember a specific conversation, uh, maybe not the specific words, but definitely the feeling behind it. This was, it was a couple years into your journey and from my experience, at least, it's so hard because here I was seeing my daughter really, really struggle. And even though I had worked in counseling and psych services and in student disability services, I still didn't have all the answers. And, you know, phobias are so different for everyone, even within specific communities. And I remember the two of us driving And you just said something really nice and simple, like, I don't think that God could have given me a a better mother for what I'm going through. And I remember holding back tears (laughs) as I'm driving. It's Mm -hmm. really important that when you feel supported by someone, even if they're not doing everything perfectly, but you see they're trying to... I'm, I'm getting a little bit emotional right now, but to let them know that you're grateful because it's while this disorder is incredibly hard for you all, I don't want to take any of that away. It's also really difficult for the person who's trying to support you because we don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers yourself and we certainly don't have all the answers. So if you think about it every now and then, if you can just let a little a lend, lend a little support to your support person, a little goes a long way. Yeah, and remind them of everything. Yeah. yeah, it's good to to share that with. It's good to share that with the people that get support. Because I mean, I don't have someone that I support tremendously, but I'm sure it's very difficult to have someone constantly needing that immense support. And constantly freaking out and constantly struggling. Yeah. 
One thing we haven't talked about tonight that we talked about last night is the importance of finding a, someone in the profession that supports you. You talked a little bit more about your psychiatrist. and Yeah. When we were chatting about, um, I think we talked about my psychiatrist and how he was really good. I think we talked about that today, but I had a psychiatrist and he was awesome. Um, he was very supportive and, you know, my mom, well, this is good to talk about, but my mom was the one who made all those appointments for me and she would always mm-hmm. come to my appointments with me. And if, um, I ever, like, if he asked a question that I honestly, as like a 15 year old, you don't really know how to answer those type of questions. Um, she would always, you know, voice her voice, whatever, I don't know, answer the questions in her own way. But yeah, I think it's really, you know, if you're a child, again, it doesn't even matter how young you are. But I think it is important to talk to a psychiatrist or uh, like try out therapy if you want to try out therapy. But getting diagnosed and um, I don't know, getting medication or trying medication if you if that's something you're willing or wanting to do. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that was really amazing about your psychiatrist. And again, everyone may have different experiences, but this is our story mm-hmm. is that when you went back to high school, you, one of the requirements that you hadn't fulfilled and you were in your going into your senior year. So you had to take was, all of the classes. I was going back to in my junior year. Yeah. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. So, so you had to fulfill all the classes in order to graduate and PE was one of them. And there was, I, I just remember sitting in that appointment and you're like, there's no, I, I won't graduate if I have to take PE. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Cause so my anxiety said, was surrounded. My anxiety was surrounded by PE and I was not going to, or I, PE is what triggered my anxiety in the first place. So right. I was not going to take that class again. Right. So thankfully we had that conversation with your psychiatrist and how that's a requirement and you had to explain to him previously how your emetophobia started during PE and he was gracious enough to actually hear that and be supportive supportive of you and wrote a letter not only to the high school but to the district to provide an accommodation that you don't have to take traditional a traditional physical education class you I think you had a substitute of like a health type class no I did I didn't even have a substitute with for a health class I, okay. I know you mentioned that yesterday but no I just had to take a credit so what I did is we talked to my psychiatrist and I don't remember if I mentioned you said you I mentioned PE previously I don't remember any of that um, but I do remember that specific appointment when he wrote the note for me mm-hmm. or when he agreed to write the note for me I told him I was like I do not want to do PE. I really, it really makes me anxious. And I like was, I said like two sentences about it. And he immediately, immediately was like, yeah, I'll write it off. Like, who cares? Like, I don't, PE doesn't matter. Like, I'll write it off. And then it was like, that was that. Like he, we were like, okay, awesome. He wrote off PE. And then um, instead of, you know, taking those credits, I still had to take those credits, but I just took him with an elective. I didn't have to do the PE specific credits so I mean like you know if you are struggling with something your psychiatrist can accommodate to one thing that's important is if you're expressing to your psychiatrist or to your family physician 
and talking about your anxiety or emetophobia and you know that you need a type of accommodation and they're not being supportive, look for another physician that will be supportive of you. Yeah, because, or, mm-hmm. or if you're a parent listening to this regarding your kid, um, right. make sure to stand up and say something about that. Right. Because they're human too. And sometimes because they've had so much training, they think that they may know better, but you're the one that knows the best. And if there is something that you need to be successful, that's what the American Disabilities Act is all about. You're not on the same playing field as someone without a disability. Mm-hmm. And so that's why that's set up. So you can be as, as successful as people who don't have to, that don't have the same struggles as you. Mm-hmm. Oh, we did talk about yesterday how you would go to work and when my anxiety really uh, flared up a lot, you were home more, I think. I don't know if you took days off a lot more or what. And then I remember you going back to work and I was super, super anxious about that. Do you know what I'm talking about? How I do, but I wasn't super crazy about that conversation because if someone has a support, like one of the reasons besides medical insurance that I've always worked at is because we are very at at a university in general, people are quite empathetic and they family, they know that the job is not the number one thing. Oh, so they understand if you need to call off for work. Yeah. And we have good benefits. So we have vacation and sick time and it's quite a bit, even just to start off with. Mm -hmm. so and not everyone's blessed with that so I felt kind of like as we were talking about that yesterday you know there's just people that have jobs that aren't supportive yeah and then I kind of felt bad because it my job is ideal Mm -hmm. for especially mental health in the two departments that I've worked in you know all I had to say is my you know I just had to tell my boss my my son is having suicidal ideation and um, and there, I may not be able to come into work for four days mm-hmm. and she's like, do what you need to do, you know? Yeah. Well, that's really nice. Cause I remember, I remember when my, uh, emophobia like really started, you were home a lot. And then I remember yeah. you were like, you told me, you're like, okay, I need to go to work more. And then mm-hmm. that was very, very scary for me. But then again, that taught me how to, um, decide which is an emergency versus which is, mm-hmm not as much as emergency, which can wait or which, which I can push through. Well, that's really nice that you had that. I think it is, you know, it's important as like, as you know, as a comfort person, as a safe person, especially a mom, you want to do all that you can for your child. For the most part, there are moms who aren't the same way or dads that aren't the same way. But for the most part, as a parent, you want to be there for your child in every way that you can be. And, um, you know, you have to, you, you have to go to work as a parent, you know, you have to make money for your family to support them. Mm -hmm. But then your child is calling you saying like, no, I need you home. Like I'm really not doing good. I think at that point, it's just, it's up to the child to, the child just has like, you know, I think again, at some points it's like, okay, they're really, really, really struggling. But then if it becomes a repetitive thing, it's like the child needs to understand that it's, I don't know. It's up to them. It's not up to like, they need to find comfort in themselves. And 
find treatment, which they can do like through therapy or looking online. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult. <laughs> it's difficult for you. It's there were times where it was exceedingly difficult for me. And it's, it's just really day by day. You know, I was so fortunate to have a supportive office environment where I could take off. But I understand that there are other partners, caregivers, parents who may not have that luxury. So it's just, how do you get through this today? How do you get through it in the near future? And just communicating and figuring it all out together. Yeah. Um, There's a mom that uh, messages the page pretty often regarding her nine-year-old daughter. And she messaged me, you know, we, we chat. Um, here and there about her daughter and how she can support her daughter specifically and she told me one time I I sent you the messages and we chatted about this but she was talking about how she feels I think she said she feels helpless (laughs) yeah because she just doesn't really know it's like she's trying everything her daughter is just not feeling better there's she's just really struggling and she like beats her she was kind of beating herself up about it which I think that's really normal mm-hmm. for a, a mom or a dad to blame themselves for it or to beat themselves up for it. When in reality, it has nothing to do with the parent. Like the parent, they didn't do anything to cause this. This is just something that it's a struggle that we're having to face in our lives. That It's an, another obstacle to overcome. Right. And even if we don't take that blame on us, like I... I never really blamed myself. I mean, there is the hereditary part of nature and nurture. And I know that this really runs strongly through my mom's side of the family. So of course there is, you know, those thoughts, there are those thoughts, but I oftentimes thought, I just, I just don't know what to do. Or I'd make a decision and I'd second guess myself. Okay. And am I being too, Am I being too supportive and enabling what you're going through? Or am I being a little too harsh? Is this the right way to act? It's just, it's as confusing for us as it's as confusing for you Mm -hmm. of what you may need. We don't know either. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's just getting through it day by day and trying to learn what works best. And then when that changes, learn what the new thing is that may or may not work best. Yeah. Yeah, we have to understand that. Both parties have to understand that. It's just a learning. Mm -hmm. It's constant learning new things and learning new exposures and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd like to say that if this conversation brought up any questions, uh, please, I'm, I'm happy to talk about this more or answer any questions that you may have if if Brooke and Maddie can't or if it you think it might be anything in the future I'm happy to help with mm-hmm. and um you know for those of you who are listening if you have any questions regarding anything or if you're a parent that has a child regarding emetophobia don't be afraid to you know reach out to the page and ask for some extra advice or support I don't know, just anything. Don't be afraid to reach out. I'll, I'll try and, you know, answer as many DMs that I can. And maybe when this episode airs, maybe I'll do like a question and answer post and see what people 
or thinking or the following week after people. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how that plays out. But I think that's everything we really wanted to talk about for this week. Mom, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I know it's different than anything. I don't think you've ever been on a podcast before. I haven't. Um, <laughs> this is my first time. It's my pleasure. Yeah. So I guess, you know, next week it's going to be Maddie and her mom. And then the following week it should be back to Maddie and I. Maybe we'll have a guest. I don't know. We'll see how that plays out. But yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. And I will see you guys in a couple weeks. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.